This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Wealthion, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Andrew Brill. Our mission here at Wealthion is to help investors achieve prosperity. Whether you're a seasoned investor or a novice like myself, you'll benefit from our expert interviews that unravel and simplify the dynamic landscapes of economic trends, markets, and investments. And remember, Wealthion's not just a channel but a conversation with our vibrant community. So keep the feedback coming. And remember, we're trying to bring you information that's going to help you achieve your financial goals. To that end, we've put together a list of registered investment advisors that we vetted. You can head on over to Wealthion.com and sign up for a free, no obligation consultation to see if your finances are in the right place. And now let's dive into today's episode. It's our weekly market recap, and I'd like to welcome Nicole Webb. Nicole is a senior vice president and financial advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group. She opened and runs and serves the, the New York office, which serves the Northeast. She's a frequent contributor in financial media, appearing on CNBC, Fox Business, Bloomberg TV and radio, and now Wealthion. Yeah. And her insights have appeared in print in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. And Nicole's gracious enough to spend time with us to help us understand what is going on in the world of the economy and the markets. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So, Nicole, we like to start by asking people, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Oh, man, what a doozy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have to just put the plug in there as the mother of a toddler generally my toddler. Um, but, you know, from a markets perspective, I, I mean, not too terribly much. I think the most, the most well-known thing about markets is they're anticipatory and they're always attempting to price in knowns. And so in terms of things keeping me up at night, markets specific, I would say it's the next unknown, the next kind of pull the rug out from underneath you, you didn't expect it to happen. 2022 and 2023 were kind of systematically almost like the, the beginnings of a small recession that never happened. And it happened across many sectors. So we had the banking crisis with SVB, you had the ripple effect of what is what pressures are going to happen as a result of commercial real estate. So you kind of had all these mini stories play out um, and those ones we all dodged. And so it's kind of waiting for that next unknown catalyst. When we think about policy and economics, I would say that 
The backdrop of deglobalization is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and sorting through as it applies to markets. Um, so when you think about globalization as the backdrop of earnings growth and margin expansion, you would think the counter about deglobalization. So onshoring more here in the U.S. and the costs of labor and inputs going up. Um, so that's rather curious. And then I think we're all still kind of sorting through business post-COVID. How do we kind of reaccelerate the energy of people working together versus so much remote work, work from home, hybrid work? Um, because we do know that a lot of creativity comes from human interaction and continuing to watch that play out through productivity. What's interesting is that the jobs numbers came out talking about people at home and people working yeah. online and stuff and the interview we're doing online and it'll stream online. So there's, uh, there's obviously that, that component to it, but jobs numbers come out. Jobs numbers seem to be very good uh, for the time being. There didn't yeah. seem to be a January effect, which Everybody, you know, everything that I read thought, oh, maybe there's a January effect. There'll be people laid off from the holiday yeah. rush of people getting hired. But that yeah. didn't seem to happen. But now we're getting reports of the giants, you know, even from the financial sector, from the services sector, people laying people off. Yeah. Is the Fed rate working? Is there is there tightening working because people are laying people off or, you know, the very general question, are we going to rely too much on AI to do people's work? Yeah. So I think the jobs report is a, a mixed bag of really interesting data. And so, you know, this jobs report really showed one thing that stuck out, which is kind of weak growth or deterioration in total hours worked. Um, and that's really interesting. So you could look at total hours worked through a glass half full and say, okay, well, this signals improved productivity, which means that unit labor costs are going down and that's gonna be great for companies that are experiencing this because unit labor costs going down helps with profitability. On the flip side, you're likely gonna hear the argument as more people sort through the jobs data say, okay, well, if we have weak growth in total hours worked, that is a classic late cycle signal where hours are being reduced before layoffs come through. And so what's likely happening is both, where you're having productivity increases at some companies and where you might have kind of future layoff signals coming. A couple of examples of that would be Amazon coming forward and saying, we were able to reduce repetitive code input at AWS by 20% thanks to AI. That is a straightforward productivity increase in that mega cap sector. On the flip side though, you hear about layoffs at UPS and some of that is just kind of the shoring up of what is the new normal post COVID. So, you know, bringing in so many new jobs at UPS during that time and now kind of finding their balancing act in, in the new normal. Um, and then I think also there was a bit of a surprise in December in terms of consumers really showed up and spent a lot of money uh, through the holiday season. And that really wasn't the expectation. And so we might see lighter layoffs in that area uh, just simply because we didn't ramp up seasonal work as much as you know we had in prior years. So we believe that jobs is going to continue to be a mixed bag of signals, um, probably on the pro side again, productivity on the negative side, 
some of kind of this more late cycle traditional way of thinking that you know we're cutting before we're laying off and so it's a data point that we'll continue to watch closely I want to touch on something you asked about consumer spending and the reports about consumer confidence, not mm -hmm. my confidence, but consumer confidence, I yeah. guess, in, in the economy with a lot of people spending money over the Christmas holidays and a little bit into this year. Do you think that people are going to start cutting back or do the numbers indicate that people might cut, start cutting back because interest rates didn't come down or don't appear to be coming down and the guidance doesn't seem that it's going to happen in March, but I would assume that consumer confidence is going to kind of wane a little bit because of some of the data that's coming out or some of the reports that are coming out that we're going to start laying people off. There's going to be fewer people to spend money out there. Yeah. You know, consumer is so, so interesting right now. And there's kind of this strong bifurcation between people who are dependent on employment today, and then the concentration of wealth in just the, 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 the wealthy individuals in this country, and then this entire population of baby boomers. And that's a little bit of the underlying data there. So when we think about the baby boomers as a general population, they act very interestingly that their generation loves owning two homes, this, you know, coin term of snowbird people from the Northeast, also on the East coast of Florida, people from the Midwest, also in Texas, Arizona, and then the West coast of Florida. And so you're seeing baby boomers who are just really not interest rate sensitive at all. They've continued to travel. They've continued to buy second homes. They've continued to do home improvement projects. And then there's the consumer confidence in all of us that are still working. And we always think a weak labor market plays into that. And we also believed that the consumer in that sector, the still working era, was going to be more interest rate sensitive than they're playing out to be. And so, you know, we saw just a slight pullback in mortgage rates and a reacceleration of, you know, activity in the real estate market. And so the consumer continues you know to be one interesting data point um but that but consumerism is sending a lot of mixed signals we're still seeing strong credit card data we're seeing that most debt is secured long-term debt um and so we'll continue to watch for erosion there but as long as we're seeing such good headline numbers for from the jobs reports we believe that the consumer will likely continue to spend kind of across the board are we kind of redefining what the middle class is? I mean, you talked about the baby boomers with two homes and then what I would consider the one percenters that are just not having the issues that some of the people that are in the, the middle and lower middle class mm -hmm. having. Are, are we redefining that? Because it seems that the, the separation is becoming greater. Yeah. I think this question is meaningful and it's important as one kind of navigates their own just economic thesis. You know, there's, like I mentioned, the baby boomer population and the wealth creation, even just in the last decade, is meaningful. Um, and then those who were not interest rate sensitive in terms of needing uh, debt to operate 
or who had the luxury of you know gas prices not really holding them back because they're not in their commuting years or i mean you can you can think about this in so many different pockets so you have this unaffected group of people with a high concentration of wealth in this country who are really not interest rate sensitive and then you have people who really the last four years since a little bit pre-covid and then certainly escalated by covid were in real need of some of the stimulus that was pushed through um, and then have fought hyperinflation through the, the last couple of years and it's left them in a trickier position and then you have the whole other group of people which i think you would generally put at least kind of when we're talking in an election year about you know groups of people would be in that middle class and you know we're seeing them have a lot of employment confidence you know, if they were able to switch jobs in the last couple of years, they accepted kind of unprecedented, you know, pay raises for that. And many of them locked in really low rates on their existing home purchases. And so they've been able to kind of well navigate. Um, and so this is, it's this tale of not all consumers are created equal. And I think more so right now in the data than, than, than commonly. So let's get into the interest rates and the people who do rely on that. And, you know, the Fed comes out, they're still trying to tighten their belt. They mm -hmm. see inflation still over the 2% level where they'd like it. They leave rates the same. How, how is this affecting the market and how is it going to affect the market going forward? Do you see us getting to that 2%? Yeah, I, th I think one of the most interesting things that's come out of disinflation is that you know the fed held off um and a lot of people will say you know they were really late uh in kind of this tightening cycle and what we're seeing now is they were partially right a lot of inflation was in fact transitory it just took longer to transition through and so disinflation has been strong. I think there's concern, as Powell said, around the stickiness of disinflation. So, you know, they have to continue to navigate data and it's messy data around, you know, not wanting to re-accelerate inflation and, and what pockets would be most sensitive to that. I think when you think about markets right now, it's really important to focus on the fact that it's not necessarily when i think there's a lot of consensus that the when is in the year 2024 and to really focus on the why which is the dual mandate of the fed and you know that the fed cutting rates is really specific action to you know maintaining low unemployment and maintaining stable inflation and so as growth continues sideways or is on a sideways trajectory and inflation continues to ease, you know, then policy becomes overly restrictive. And I think that in and of itself is helpful in how one continues to navigate investing. And really right now, the focus from an investing perspective is, um, you know, you wanna be thinking about the structure of debt within the companies that you are investing in. Um, and then managing to the expectation of how interest rates affect those businesses specifically.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Are we looking at interest rates properly? Uh, you know, Sherrod Brown the Democrat from Ohio said, you know, the, the, we're being too restrictive and we're relying too much on interest rates. Is that the right metric to try and control inflation and the economy? Gosh, I think, is that the right? I think when you think about the levers available, um, you know, that, is you know i this is a complex question and maybe even a bit above my pay grade in terms of you know way above um, mine for sure <laughs> yeah you know one of the things and neil kashkari has been vocal about this uh within the fed and you know i think to my earlier points interest rates only do so much and you know, you can highlight going back to Neil Kashkari's comments, you know, um, immigration policy and the jobs report will continue and does continue to kind of highlight this. So we're all acutely aware of, you know, the issues we have at our borders. And yet we've been really kind of reliant on non-born, um, you know, work as part of the as part of the labor pool. And so, you know, some of that policy intersection, I think, is where people who think we're too, you know, singular in our conversations about rates exist. I think from, you know, a market's perspective, rates are really important in terms of how you value a company. And so I do believe we should still focus on rates when it comes to how we think about earnings per share growth of the companies that we are investing in. I think there's a whole other side to this, which is policy. And we really believe that our job is to look at existing policy as it exists today and make conscious investing decisions based on it. And then, you know, as policy changes over time, one then applies those changes to their investment thesis and how businesses will operate. So I think it's just this distinction of we invest in companies. We don't necessarily invest in, you know, what policymakers are doing day to day. Right. And I want to just go back to interest rates and how they relate to certain things like, yeah. you know, there are there are obviously things that are coming down prices. Some prices are coming down. But for some reason, food doesn't come down. Is food and stuff like, like gas prices have come down. Other th used car prices have come down. Yeah. So it is easing a little bit. But why does food lag so far behind? Because food prices are still crazy. 
Yeah. I mean, th this is, food's really interesting. I tell clients this story often. I have this very like visceral inflation memory of going to Target to buy groceries and I reached for chicken and was and just couldn't even believe that it was $12.99 a pound. It's just something in incredible like that. And I felt like spending $20 for chicken just seemed astronomical. And we've seen some of those prices come down. And that's where kind of going back to my comments earlier about inflation being transitory. So, you know, you have that. And then you have the geopolitical pressures that have affected food as well. So on one hand, you know, you have meat distributors where the plants are open again, and you've seen those prices come down. And that's an element of that uh, transitory inflation. We were able to fully staff and be at full operating potential again. And then you have some of the other sides, you know, wheat is an example where geopolitical pressures have continued to make that less transitory in nature because you have new pressures that didn't necessarily stem from COVID related issues. And so food continues to be, a, you know, challenging. And I think going back full cycle to something I said early, which is there is this backdrop, whether you're talking about food or energy or the manufacturing of semi, you know, semi chips, um, all of this deglobalization and onshoring, you know, to, to kind of control more of those pressures that became exacerbated as a result of COVID. Are we, I, and I know that there's the big debate, recession, not recession, were we in one, are we going into one? But yeah. it seems like there's certain sectors, like you, you mentioned, they're doing really, really well. Can we now look at this as kind of sector specific? You know, pe you know, you know, some companies struggling, some companies just going bonkers. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting moment in time. There is. So if we look back at 2023, what you saw was growth above expectation, and that simply did not translate into earnings per share growth. So again, staying kind of markets focused. When we think about 2024 and embedded into expectations for the S&P 500, you know, you have baked in kind of a 10% plus earnings per share growth number. And at the same time, nine out of 11 sectors that make up the S&P um, you know, have reduced expectations for their 2024 outlook. And so, you know, I don't believe that it's kind of a sector specific recessionary story. I think what you're seeing more is just the unique challenges. And I'll just take comm services and technology, which have actually increased their expectations for 2024, where the other nine have not. And what you're seeing is kind of this, this resilience, this the digitization, the technology advancements, you know, really happening in the short term, and then kind of the necessity of some stabilization of rates or rate cuts, some of kind of these labor costs. Last year, we were still faced with, you know, high labor expenses, and then that backdrop of deep globalization. And so the broadening of the market may take longer than was had you know, that was expected initially for 2024, where at the end of 2023, everyone was kind of, okay, it's going to be the broadening trade in 2024. That's the setup. And instead, what you've seen in the first trading month of the year is technology continue 
to be both what, what you know, pushed us ahead in 2023 and what's taking off so far in 2024. So let, let's get to some of those tech companies that uh, have gone bonkers. I mean, if, you know, I guess early in the week, Wednesday or so, you know, Alphabet and Google and Microsoft come in and, you know, beat expectations, have went down a little bit, have recovered nicely, but you did go down. What, first of all, why that swing? I mean, I, I guess some of the profit was built in and people are like, oh, great. And then people are like, okay, I'm going to take some profit. I'm going to get in a little bit lower and then ride it out. So, yeah. you know, those two in particular, and I know Microsoft, you know, really put a charge on towards the end of the week. So uh, how about those two to start with? Yeah. Well, I think overarching, whether you are talking about Amazon, uh, Alphabet, you know, um, Apple, Meta, Meta, yeah. You know, it's all it's all kind of the same story to me. One of the analysts on our team, and he's just exceptional, and he said it so well. He said, "There's a scarcity premium in the mega cap names right now, and that scarcity scarcity premium is related to AI. Everyone wants to participate in what we believe." AI can do and the early benefactors are the creators and the early adopters. And it's those who have the ease of deployment because they already are technology companies where we're seeing the most flows. And so when you think about, and again, you know, what I said earlier, AWS, you know, had a 20% increase or decrease in repetitive coding that individuals had to do as a result of AI. That's a massive shift to productivity. Meta, Meta declaring its dividend, Meta saying our free cash flow growth is through the roof, even though we're continuing to invest in, you know, future stage technologies. And again, part of that growth, that free cash flow growth is coming from these the AI applications. You can move down the list to Alphabet and the way it's using AI to increase advertising sales and what they charge per advertisement. So, you know, it's again, this, this scarcity premium in how do I participate in AI? And right now, megatech is the way that most people are comfortable doing it because they can see it happening already. A lot of AI companies are still held in the private sector. And so, you know, it, it, it might take a while for you know more participation or more of the names involved in AI to come public. And until then, you'll probably continue to see you know flows um, you know at the active le- level into these technology names. Do you see more of those private companies doing an IPO? I, I was reading about you know IPOs might be back. Yeah. A, I would assume it's a great way to to raise cash, especially when interest rates are high. Yeah, you know, the, the nifty thing about private companies is they don't really have to tell us their plan. <laughs> and, exactly. you know, so, but those those that operate in, you know, the investment into those, com- into those names um, have said it, the runway is probably somewhere between one to three years and have likened this moment in time to that of 1995, that we would be sitting in 1995, not just because we anticipate the market to be at all time highs and the Fed to start strategically shaving rates lower, which we also did see in the 90s, 
but also in in 1995 you still didn't really have a lot of these dot-com companies that had gone public yet and so it wasn't until you know 96 97 98 that you started to see more of that move to the public markets and so there is you know a sect of people who believe that we are just in the beginning you know the beginning stages of what AI will look like inside of our markets um, in terms of public investment and that it'll it'll take a year or two to, to kind of start to move its way in. So we're looking at the AI bubble as opposed to the dot-com bubble at this point. Yeah. And I mean, we, we forget to talk about other bubbles. I mean, there was the application technology bubble. Think about all the app names that we know Uber, oh Lyft, Bumble. I mean, I can keep going, and and so we also all the had, ones on my phone. <laughs> yes, every app on your phone that we watched move public, skyrocket higher, come back down, um, because they're tough to value in the beginning. What is the stickiness of that business, and and how do we properly value it? And and we'll probably watch that play out in AI as well. What's interesting though is that some of these private companies lit a fire under the feet of the names that we know so well. So when you think about ChatGPT as a large language model, you better believe that that put pressure on the people at Alphabet, as an example, for Google to build out its large language model and then move it into its enterprise systems to make it applicable to business everywhere. And so, you know, you're going to start to hear more of kind of the rolling out of how do some of these large companies take what they've built internally to incre increase productivity and hopefully you know, net margin, net profitability for lots of businesses. And you know, that then can play out in that broadening trade as well. You almost get the sense that, like you say, that you kind of have to get on board. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind in, 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 with the AI stuff. Yeah. And I think it's stuff is actually the perfect word. You know, I, I think about this all the time when application technology came around and, and we think about all the apps on our phone, the last thing that we would we ever would have thought was that it was going to create ride share. I mean, we didn't really think that that technology was going to alleviate the need for cabs like that was that wasn't on anyone's radar. We also didn't believe that social media would move out of the blog sphere into apps and then create this massive commerce environment for ad sales, for influence. I mean, it's fascinating when you think about it. So I don't think we really even know what the stuff is yet that AI packages up that we all are going to be consumers of. And so I actually think stuff is the right word. <laughs> and it, you know, AR and VR are kind of being left to the wayside too in this conversation, but augmented reality and virtual reality, there's a reason Meta spent, I think it was $16 billion last year in R&D in the metaverse. And I think we should all really start to conceptualize um, the, all that is possible from that as well. And, and so, yes, you gotta get on board. Um, and then all of it is going to be is run, uh, you know, by by computers. You, you yeah, could right. go as far as say quantum computing and the storage necessary, and then the data storage facilities. And so there's just a lot of robust growth there. Um, and you, yes, you're seeing that play out in valuations 
right now. And yet at the same time, you know, I don't think we even know how far it, it's going to take us. I want to touch on, you, you talked about Meta and declaring a dividend, a 50 cent dividend. And look, everybody who owns Meta, obviously very happy. Look, I'm going to get a little extra money. That's great. They're also going to increase their capital expenditures for the for this year, mm -hmm. as as is Amazon. There's a lot of companies that ex, ex, talked about increasing their capital expenditures, mm -hmm. but with Meta, it, with interest rates where they are, do they just have all that extra cash to pump into you know capital expenditures? And yes, and I think that what you saw actually was just incredible shore up free cash flow growth and a proof point in the declaration of the dividend. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations in the last few hours, you know, just around the meta dividend. And, and what I think it comes down to is it's a proof point that they can do both. And I think a lot of that is why you saw that the stock price take off, you know, 14%, I think it was. Right. And, <laughs> and it, all of that comes down to, they were, they were probably overly brutalized for uh, expenditures, just overspending, overspending. This belief that um, you know Mark Zuckerberg was he was too immature. The landscape changed. He needed to grow up, and you saw them reduce headcount. You know expenses that were maybe fluffier, and instead really pour that into capex expense and. And so I think the dividend is a proof point of being able to do both and their own belief system in uh, kind of where they're going to be able to take free cash flow going forward. Um, and I think all of that's really inter interesting. And then that's even more substantiated by their increase in their sh share buyback program. So, you know, I think all of that you know, speaks volumes to where they believe the company is headed. I think Mark Zuckerberg was also brutalized in Congress this week. That's yeah. a whole different story. That's a totally different story. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, yeah. I, that you didn't. You did not ask me to be here to come talk to you about no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> it was. I'm just making a comment. But oh, I, no, no, no. I know, and I was about to give you my opinion, which I don't. I don't think that's what everyone listening is here for. So, right. but the the meta dividend, obviously. Things are going well at Meta. Things are going well at Amazon. The Magnificent Seven, Nvidia, going bonkers. Mm -hmm. um, does the divot, Does Meta declaring a dividend put pressure on these other companies to keep up the ones that don't give a dividend? Mm, I don't think. I, I mean, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, you've had Microsoft paying a dividend for a long time, and that didn't necessarily put pressure on Apple or Meta to. Do it anytime sooner. Um, I think you know, for Meta specifically, the things that have been called into question about the operation of the business and the value of the business made the declaration of dividend and the increase in the share buyback meaningful for that company. Um, you know, I, I I don't necessarily think it's going to be a ripple effect or it's going to move flows away from one versus the other. Um, you can't deny Apple its free cash flow numbers. You can't deny Apple its stickiness, um, its pricing power, just you know all the things that Apple brings forward. I think what will be really interesting is watching for there to be competition. Do the big just keep getting bigger or do we introduce more 
names into the mix where you instead start to see new flows move into you know different technology companies and to your point i think that might just take a series of ipos um, before we really start to see their competition for flows and then we also can never forget just the passive investing element um, most investors on the retail side and then also on the institutional money manager side the the flows into passive cap weighted etfs that represent the s p 500 um, those flows will continue you know to help these mega mega cap names and so you know you can't can't turn a blind eye to that so when we think about money in cash sitting on the sidelines i'm not certain that you know enough is going to be so thoughtful in being part of only the broadening trade right the 493 as we talked about all through 2023 um and so again yes there's yes there is concentration. Yes, these companies are crowded and expensive. And yes, they're still moving in momentum to the upside. Is there a, a concern that these companies are just too big and there's just not enough room for someone to get in? I, I don't know because I think it's a narrow view to think that. I mean, we'd all pretty much given up on Microsoft until not that many years ago. Um, so I, th I think what'll be really interesting is to see what does make its way into the public market and then how that story is told. And um, I also am a firm believer that we still don't know to the extent, you know, in which technology advancements um, help the top and bottom line of the 493 other companies we haven't talked about, you know, in our conversation today. Um, and so I think, you know, there's room, there's room for more, there's room for many. Um, and for, but for right now, the momentum is certainly in these household names, um, you know, and, and what they're bringing forward in terms of clarity and the story around AI and its impact to their business. I want to touch on Apple. You had mentioned Apple earlier and obviously a company that's doing well, but globally they, they announced that they were having problems with their iPhone in China, not yeah. the, the iPhone itself, but people weren't buying the iPhone. Is that, in your opinion, is that tied to the Chinese economy because people aren't spending as much on a, a new iPhone? Uh, look, I get I get alerts all the time. You're due for an upgrade. It's like, yeah, yeah. but my phone's working just fine. Yeah, I'd love to put my boots on the ground in China in the coming months because it is um, the data is such a mixed bag and never super helpful or transparent. Um, there's two things there. One, the COVID story in China is very different than the narrative for Americans. And, you know, that reopening trade in China really is not even a year old now. And we're just seeing that there's more issues post-pandemic China than was necessarily assumed or expected. And so, you know, we saw consumerism not pick back up in the same way that we had expected. Um, and so I certainly do think that that has an impact. Um, there's also been just a little bit of strife, whether it was with Apple or, you know, chip purchasing, you know, um, I think China is just in a weaker position and we saw that trickle through in the numbers. Um, the thing about Apple, though, is 
we do know that their intent is to really try and ramp up um, their services side of the business. And that's going to take some time. And so, yes, it's going to be highlighted when they don't hit on the product spot side, especially XUS. And at the same time, I think a lot of people are betting on Apple's ability to move away from you know, being so product focused and bring more of that services orientation into the business mix. So my last question is, I guess I have two questions. Okay. Where can this market go? I, you know, we're, we're setting records on the Dow, the S and P NASDAQ all the time. I shouldn't have record new highs. Yeah. How far can this go? Yeah. I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball. No, your, I know. I think <laughs> I think it's, um, I see there's so much opportunity in markets today. I am a huge believer that, um, that there's room for this to run. And at some future date, the market today will look cheap. I don't know if that's at the end of this year or if it takes years for us to look back and think that the market was cheap today. What I do know is that last year, you really did have a distinct market until really November, whereby many names on the S&P were at the same share price that they'd been in 2021. And, you know, justifiably, we dodged a global recession, you know, supply chain came back online. Um, we're also seeing that inventories aren't holding up, you know, that the consumer demand's actually been stronger in many pockets than expected. And so at some point we have to rebuild inventories, which then, you know, brings manufacturing numbers back or reaccelerates, you know, pockets. And, um, and then at the same time, there's certainly headwinds against cost and, you know, in navigating that on a business by business, um, perspective. And so right now what we're really focused on is who are the quality companies inside of each sector? And then from, you know, in a sector perspective, then, you know, subsector those out and really looking at who has the highest likelihood of navigating uh, shareholder return and, and staying really focused on that because not all companies are created equally. And we are, like I like I said, we believe that the data will be a little bit messy as you navigate, you know, fiscal and monetary policy. You layer on the volatility of an election year, um, and and the sensitivity of the consumer. Should we have any, you know, unexpected moves? So, all of that makes it a year to just really focus on quality of company. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your insights. Where can people find you on social media if you're on social media so they can gain more insights? Yeah, I love followers. So you can follow me on LinkedIn at Nicole Webb. I'm pretty active there. And I would say that is the best place to find me. Um, otherwise, you can Google Nicole Webb at wealthenhancementgroup.com and you'll find my direct email address there. So if anybody ever wants to have a conversation, it's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> Nicole, thanks so much. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. That's a wrap on another episode of The Wealthion Show. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please reach out via our email, social media, or head over to our website, wealthion.com. Thank you for watching, and until next time, stay informed, 
stay empowered, and may your investments flourish.